Talk Recorded live. You're listening to the Jam Radio Network with Minister Kenneth Jenkins. <laughs> Views and opinions of nation talk are not necessarily views. I'll talk to you again with your productions. And it's This is Nation This is your Sunday evening forum, Nation Talk. Nation Talk is a live public affairs and news program that deals with issues concerning you from the studios of Savannah, Georgia. Sunday of December, well, the 
first week of December. Tonight, uh, we're going to be talking, of, we're going to tackle such issues. We have a Dan Rather report, a nation, a national disgrace. We're going to find out what that's all about. We've got news and views, and a hail and farewell to Jim Neighbors. We lost the script. The educational system in our country isn't quite the best in the world, but we're striving, we're struggling. In one particular city, for example, There is one place in this country where the educational system is what is called a national disgrace. It's part of a historic documentary, part investigation report, and part personal profile detailing the political strife, corruption, and systematic breakdown the terminate 2009-2010 school year when the state of Michigan imposed new leadership on the school district. The result is a seeming portrait of a local tragedy that asks the question, does the situation in Detroit demonstrates how we view public education. It is the real national disgrace, the fact that something this could happen at all. This is, here is Dan Rattle reports, national disgrace. Uh, Hello, brother Mike. We're going to talk to you as well, get your opinion on this. You can call in also at one seven two four 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 seven four forty four. Call at the number five 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 one nine pound. Here's Dan Rather's report. The following is an HD Net original presentation.
we found a story that was much more complex than we had imagined. So we decided to spend a year documenting a school district in crisis and the students who were trapped in the system with nowhere else to go.
continue to enjoy a standard of living we have come to take for granted. And so I'd like to just open up and have a bit of a conversation. In May 2009, President Obama's newly appointed Secretary of Education, Arne Duncan, took this message to Detroit to direct national attention to a city whose very name has become synonymous with economic blight, urban decay, failed schools. I don't have to go to Detroit to know that it smells. The city's become a punchline in the popular culture for jokes about the worst of the worst. Take him to Detroit. No! No, not Detroit! No! No, Many journalists have come to Detroit to take pictures of abandoned buildings and to write earnest essays about what's wrong here. They often call the city a ghost town. Detroiters are understandably defensive over outsiders coming here and criticizing their city. You could make a pretty good case, unfortunately, that Detroit is ground zero education in this country. Arnie Duncan had a lot to say about Detroit's failing schools, but one phrase he used drowned out all the others. What is going on in Detroit is an educational disgrace. He called the Detroit public schools a national disgrace. Many people here were offended that their city was singled out. But perhaps Secretary Duncan wasn't so much pointing the finger at them. Maybe he was pointing at all of us for allowing something like this to happen. I mean, if we'd have been wiped out by a hurricane, everybody would be flocking here to tell the story of Detroit and how bad things are and how children are being cheated. Because this has been sort of a self-inflicted, rolling disaster over the last 20 years, and nobody really seems to care about us here anymore. Nolan Finley writes a bi-weekly column and runs the editorial page at the Detroit News. For years, he has been a sharp critic of Detroit's public schools, known locally as DPS. Dropout rates have gone up. Student achievement rates have gone down. Detroit schools, in a nutshell, are not doing the job they're assigned to do, which is educating the children of this city. In 2009, Detroit public school students scored the worst results ever recorded on the NAEP test. The National Assessment of Educational Progress serves as the nation's report card for student achievement. Detroit was at the bottom of the list of big city schools, with 73% of fourth graders below basic skill level. No students had advanced scores. And the same year, Education Week magazine created a stir when it said Detroit's high school graduation rate was only 26%. The district challenged that finding, saying the true rate was much higher. But no matter how you parse the data, the legacy of failure is clear. Nearly half of the adults in Detroit are functionally illiterate. With that high dropout rate and that high failure rate, I don't understand why the civil rights lawyers aren't lined up over here on the steps of the federal courthouse demanding these kids get their right to a quality education. In a system that's only graduating 25% of its students and half of those cannot read, is a failed system. We often heard local advocates for education refer to the plight of their schools as an unfinished civil rights struggle. Where the civil rights struggles of decades past galvanized entire cities, community events like this one at the New Bethel Baptist Church on Detroit's west side were sparsely attended. 
church, but those who did show up were passionate. We don't have to fill this church in order to make changes in the lives of our children. So if our okay, we're freedom writers. That's what we are tonight. So join with me as we start talking about solutions and resolutions to some of the issues that are impacting our children and impacting our community. This is our community. These are our children. And as they say, it does take a village, but we also know we need to watch who's in the village as well. I feel that I have a right to go to that school and complain about the way my kids are being educated. They're looking critical things in schools. My, my objective is to blow up the system and start over because the system in place does not work. And, 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 and I live in this community, and, and, and as I looked around as a father, I was very dissatisfied because I thought Detroit would be a different community than what it is now. And it's not, for me as a child, it was a beacon of hope for African Americans to demonstrate to the world that we could raise out of slavery and run something for ourselves in our own way, and, and, and it's not happening. Today, Detroit is one of the poorest cities in the country. Jobs here are scarce, and the real unemployment rate may be as high as 50%. More than three-quarters of Detroit public school children are so poor they qualify for free or reduced-price lunches. Neighborhoods are empty and most businesses have long since folded or moved to the suburbs. So you've got the shoot area, we've got one of our close schools right here that really tore up literally the backside open right here. Okay. Just be safe again. Thanks. Thanks. That's why. More than half the city's schools have been closed, abandoned, and forgotten. Many are beautiful, hardy brick structures often still bursting with textbooks and supplies. The files and records of students long gone still intact in vandalized classrooms. Detroit is unsurpassed for opportunity and growth. There is a renaissance, a, a rebirth in the city. There's a newness in Detroit. There was a time, not so long ago, that Detroit shook with optimism. Detroit. An exciting place to be, to live, to grow, to work shoulder to shoulder, regardless of national origin, color, or creed. The Motor City was once the fourth largest in the United States. It boasted vibrant department stores and world-class art museums. The inner city is becoming an exciting place to live. A bustling, prosperous metropolis. Convenient to shops, offices, and the most modern of schools. With a population of 2 million and nearly 400,000 students in its schools, the city was multiracial and middle class. But by the time this promotional film was made in 1965, the seeds for Detroit's decline had already been planted. Part of the lure of the suburb is in the greater elbow room it offers. White flight, with its movement of jobs and wealth to the suburbs, was well underway. Four days of rioting, looting, and arson rocked the city of Detroit in the worst outbreak of urban racial violence this year. July 1967, race riots engulfed the city. Forty-three people dead and over a thousand injured. Entire blocks of homes become infernos, and damage topped the half-billion mark. 
Governor Romney declares a state of emergency. The city's industry and business are severely affected. Sniper groups use day and night hit-and-run tactics before tanks move in to curb their window and rooftop barrage. But racial mistrust had always been strong in Detroit. We built the country up and we'll burn it down, honkies and all. Hey, Mr. Brown, did you tell them to burn down that school? Be serious, I ain't got to tell black folks what to burn. For decades, blacks and whites had lived in different, segregated neighborhoods and gone to their own schools. It was an unspoken segregation. But in 1970, the school board passed a busing plan to desegregate the high schools. Detroit's remaining white population fought the measure, hard, and they weren't alone. The anti-busing fervor rocked the country. In the Detroit suburb of Pontiac, Michigan, 10 school buses were torched and anger spilled out into the streets. Detroit's busing plan was shelved and the NAACP went to court. Then came a decision that rattled the city. A federal judge ruled that the only way to break down the barriers of race in Detroit's increasingly African-American schools was to use busing to integrate them with dozens of white suburban school districts. The white suburbs revolted, passing resolutions to try to stave off the court order, and the issue became national. Arguments next in number 73434, Milliken against Bradley. The landmark case, known as Milliken versus Bradley, reached the Supreme Court in 1974. And in a contentious 5-4 decision, the justices overturned the lower court ruling. There would be no busing between Detroit and her suburbs. The city line became a line of racial divide, separating Detroit's public schools from the mostly white suburban schools. The court today takes a giant step backwards. In a sting dissent, Justice Thurgood Marshall railed against what he saw as systematic injustice. The Detroit School Board consciously drew school attendance zones along lines which maximized the segregation of races in their schools. He felt the ruling was a perversion of Brown versus Board of Education, in which the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that school segregation on the basis of race was unconstitutional. The very evil that Brown was aimed at will not be cured, but will be perpetuated. And today, more than 50 years after Brown, Detroit's public schools are 88% African American and only 2% white. But race is only part of the story. As Detroit has become poorer and its schools worse, many African Americans who have the means to move elsewhere or send their children to private school, have done exactly that. And that line around Detroit that used to separate blacks and whites now segregates by economic class as well. So it's not just white flight. Blacks have left, black professionals that fear for their children's safety, that want police to come more timely, that want to, to just walk and, and enjoy their neighborhood. And want to have a good school. And want to have a good school. And that has meant that teachers like Sherry Gay Dagnogo see mostly students from poor homes whose parents themselves have a limited education. It's disheartening because we know that everybody doesn't come from a perfect setting. Everybody doesn't have a support system in place that ensures their success. Well, do you have parent-teacher conferences? Oh, yeah. Were they well-attended? 
Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I don't know. I just wish that parents could consider the impact that they have on their children when they're not there and not supporting them. Did your students, by and large, did they read at grade level or near grade level? I would venture to say the majority of the class could not read. Thank God we we do have audio CDs um, to let the students listen. Because they couldn't read the book. Could not read. It's all part of a vicious cycle. Children who come from homes where they aren't prepared for education, who then fail in school, and then have children of their own, doomed to repeat the process. That's how you get a city where roughly half of the adult population is functionally illiterate. In our city, in our community, I don't know where people get this. They want to mask the truth. Often stated, don't air our dirty laundry in the public. It's swinging, swinging real high. So the dirty laundry is already out there. We have to change the conversation in such a way that it impacts change in our culture. Well, let's try starting what you would consider to be the necessary new conversation. How does it start? Being honest about our dropout rate, being honest about our illiteracy rate, being honest about the support that needs to be in place. What mechanisms have to be put in place to make sure we bring a child that's at a third grade reading level to their proper eighth grade, seventh grade reading level? Oh, that's irritating. I know what it is. I don't like screaming. That's my child. We've been working on some vocabulary, and nobody's here. So what am I supposed to do? You got caught in the catch-22 because you didn't have a look, and you have to have a look to be weighed. There's nothing wrong with the children. The children are okay. The children can learn. We just haven't put them in the right environment here. Even though we know the models that work, even though we have models that work, we can look around us and see schools that are doing better. Finley points to schools like University Prep in downtown Detroit, run by people like Doug Ross. Ross is a former politician who decided he wanted to try his hand at improving public education in Detroit. The official name of University Prep is University Preparatory Academy, and that's how it sees its mission, preparing its students for higher education. With an early foundation in reading. Founded a decade ago, it now has students from kindergarten through 12th grade. Their test scores are many points higher than their peers in other Detroit schools and much closer to the Michigan state average. University Prep graduates almost all of its students each year, 95% in 2010. And even more impressive, nearly all of them go on to college. But University Prep isn't a traditional public school. It's a charter school, which places it at the center of an educational debate that stretches across the United States. What's the difference between a charter school and a public school? It's really just how they're governed. It's like saying, what's better, a publicly held corporation or a privately held? You'd say, well, I don't know, show me the company, I'll tell you if it's any good. It's not an education philosophy, it just means you are independently governed public school, which gives you the chance to innovate. And some chartered schools take advantage of it. A charter is just a 
a contract to run a public school. Many charter school proponents would have you believe that these schools are the ultimate solution to our national education crisis, but the data doesn't really support that. Not all charter schools perform as well as university prep. A recent Stanford University study found that only 17% of charter schools nationwide provide superior education opportunities for their students. 37% deliver results that are significantly worse than the traditional public schools. What about the argument, and I've heard this, that charter schools talk the good talk, but they don't actually walk the walk, that charter schools don't do a better job. If you do the same thing that the failing public school down the street does in your chartered school, you get exactly the same results. A chartered school is an opportunity to innovate. It's a lot better because it challenges students. Versus Detroit public schools, you can pass with all Ds. We don't have a lot of security guards. We don't have to go through metal detectors. We just come in, and then we just know what we're supposed to do. If I was in, like, a Detroit public school, like, I wouldn't have no focus. Like, our teachers, like, they stay on this, make sure we're going on the right track in life and stuff like that. In 2003, a local philanthropist, Bob Thompson, offered $200 million to create 15 more charter schools in Detroit, like University Prep. Supporters of the plan saw it as an opportunity to give some 6,000 additional Detroit students a chance for a better education. The school district firmly said, no thank you. Critics like Nolan Finley blasted the decision. Why would a district with such problems turn down an offer to build more schools based on a model that seemed to be working? Granted, the national picture for charter school performance may be murky, but University Prep has posted much better educational results than the majority of Detroit's public schools. We can look to other cities where things are being done to address this crisis, and then you come to Detroit, and we're so interested in protecting this, the status quo, so interested in protecting the parasites who feed off of these schools that we won't change a thing here. Who are those parasites? Well, you can start with the teachers' unions. You can start with the contractors. You can start with the school board. The education performance of these children, that's at the bottom of the priority list for, these, for the school board and for this, for this city. Uh, the political structure of the city is all wrapped up in the school board. You know, their friends have jobs. Their spouses have jobs. No one has an incentive to change. Coming in... I was not given a single document by the school board, uh, not a policy, not a five-year plan, not academic goals, uh, not a budget. I wasn't given any information, so it meant I was starting at ground zero. We first met Dr. Connie Calloway when she was nearing the end of a tumultuous 18 months as superintendent of the Detroit Public Schools, a tenure marked by fierce fights with Detroit's elected school board. Well, I heard the superintendent say that she said something that I did not hear her say. I heard Today, I don't know which side she's working for. I raised the same question. That is what I said in the back room. From the beginning, Dr. Calloway says she found a district operating dishonestly and without accountability. When you got there, what shocked you most about the Detroit schools? The complete absence of any process or organization. Uh, for example, when I got there, the district was overinflating its enrollment by between five and 10,000 students. 
And over the past years, Detroit has gone from 300,000 students to its current enrollment of 95,000. They lose between five and 10,000 students per year. Public schools are funded by your tax dollars. If a district lies about its numbers, they get more money. So inflating enrollment is a form of fraud. And an honest accounting meant Callaway would have to make cuts. And for at least two years, Detroit had not maintained a staff seniority list. So how does one know who should be the first to be laid off and that complete absence of fundamental systems and organization was a shock to me. Callaway told us she was determined to channel that shock into action. But first, she needed a detailed picture of the school district, one based on hard facts. And the picture she got back was ugly. She found the district was still paying expensive utility bills on shuttered schools years after they'd been closed. She discovered test scores in writing had declined by an alarming 23% over a three-year period. And she was shocked to find that there had been no evaluations of district employees for more than a decade. Callaway's findings totaled almost 1,400 pages. She felt she now had what she needed to begin to make a change in DPS. This notebook provides the baseline data that I never received. It is a building profile of every single school in the district with the number of students, with the attendance. It is an evaluation form. All of the employees in the district were evaluated. But when she handed out copies to members of the school board, she says most of them didn't seem to care about what she'd found. And looking in hindsight at the barriers, at the obstacles that were thrown in my path, I believe it was chaos by design. Chaos is one thing. Chaos by design is another thing. Yes, indeed. Who designed this chaos and why? Uh, it's been years in the making, Mr. Rather. Uh, I don't think that it happened just with this board. I think that uh, this board carried on business the way that it had been done. This meeting is called to order. This meeting is being held pursuant to Section 5.2 of the employment contract between the board and Dr. Callaway. Callaway and the school board clashed from the start. And in December 2008, the board voted to terminate her contract. This public hearing was held two months later. Let's put this as directly as possible. In your judgment and based on your experience, why were you fired after only 18 months on the job in Detroit? They bottom line said she's changing too much, she's interfering with our money, and they said to me, you interfered with our money, will interfere with yours. Her termination hearing was a formality, but in front of a packed room of supporters and activists, Dr. Callaway was determined to throw all of her frustrations back at the school board. I fought desperately for this district. 70% of my time was spent jumping through hoops with the Board of Education. The board approved this program when we are in deficit and we don't have funds and don't have textbooks.
I just lost. I, I, I lost all hope after that. Now that the testimony has been concluded, that concludes this hearing. Thank you. I feel like they didn't want her here because she had exposed some of the things that were going on, and especially when it came to that money. It was you all. It was this district that robbed these kids of their education. The, the payroll person needs to be locked up. Needs to be locked up. You can't tell me whoever it was in those 500 people was that president. That's ridiculous. By the time Dr. Calloway arrived in the summer of 2007, the press and the public were becoming acutely aware of some serious financial malfeasance plaguing the district. In particular, the FBI was investigating a contract kickback scheme run out of the district's central offices. At least $46 million appears to have vanished in a series of mysterious wire transfers. But that was only what the public read in the papers. District insiders experienced fraud and mismanagement on a scale that defied belief. I worked at DPS for one and a half years. The kids were never a top priority. The kids were never a top priority because if they were, then you wouldn't spend $40 million moving into a facility that you can't justify and then pay rent on top of that. Separate and apart from the FBI's investigation, Lacon Ogentornbo is talking about yet another multi-million dollar scandal, the details of which have only recently come to light. It all centers around the 30-story Fisher Building, one of Detroit's most luxurious. In 2002, the district decided its existing headquarters were inadequate, but rather than stay in a building they already owned, they bought five floors here and gave a no-bid contract for renovations. You're spending $40 million to move into the new Swank facilities when you could have stayed at the older facility which you owned and spent maybe five, ten, or fifteen million dollars to fix it up. The price tag is all the more shocking when you realize that the entire Fisher Building had sold the previous year for three million dollars less than DPS paid for just five floors of it. But it doesn't end there. It was spending money, as a friend of mine used to put it, like drunken sailors. Much of the space DPS bought was still occupied by other tenants and would be for years to come. So the school district agreed to spend $2 million per year to rent space in the building next door. It's not a good thing when you walk out of a place that you're ashamed of. There's some things I could have done differently. One thing I could have done differently is I could have said, well, um, I see a lot of things that are not right. Maybe I should make an appointment and talk to the feds and blow the whistle a little bit. But I didn't do that, and I regret that. In June 2009, Ogan Toynbo wrote a fiery whistleblowing editorial for the Detroit News. In it, he listed scam after scam he said he'd witnessed firsthand, such as a prominent local critic of Detroit's public schools who was put on the district payroll at $25,000 per month. Vociferous critic of the district. And the only thing I could conclude from that was this was a payoff to keep him quiet. Because during that time, he did not criticize the school district. With allegations of fraud and mismanagement swirling about, the district was earning a reputation as an ungovernable mess, and it was having a hard time keeping superintendents. I was the seventh superintendent to be hired in nine years, and even more uh, critical, there had been four chief financial officers prior to the one that I brought in. 
When Connie Calloway was hired in 2007, they practically had to beg someone to take the superintendent's job, even though it paid a quarter of a million dollars a year. A nationwide search had netted fewer than 20 applicants. Did you know when you took the job what you were getting into? I read the news. I was aware that there was a federal investigation into the federal funds in the district, $47 million that was electronically wired out of the district over a three-month period. I was aware that they had gone from a uh, state takeover to an elected board. Yes, I was aware of those problems that were common knowledge to the public at the time that I took over. There were other more insidious issues in terms of the politics that I wasn't fully aware of. Good evening, everyone. Any discussion of politics and the Detroit schools has to start with the elected school board. I'm not even, I'm not even going to greet this board. They have completely and utterly failed us because I came here to raise hell. Do you hear me? In meeting after meeting, the resentment and dissatisfaction from parents and activists surges to the surface. Why don't you all get up, move out of that office down and move into one of these buildings that y'all got just in there? I don't know how you sleep at night. Kimberly Bishop has put five children through DPS. She says she finds herself appalled at the board's dysfunction. Typical school board meeting usually lasts around maybe five to six hours, sometimes a little longer. You know what? Security, that's the last time. I'm asking you please to assist me. Elder needs to leave. We do not attack other members of the audience. It's rude and unnecessary. Um, I have seen some go to two in the morning. But grandpa, your time is up, Elder. But grandpa, Elder, your time is up. I heard you the first time. Public comments are limited to two minutes, so people try to make the most of it.
Madam President, I think part of the Member question Member Adams, because if you had closed doors and the rest of the board don't know about it, this is what you get. Member Thornton, I gave you the chance to give your opinion, now I'm giving mine. This is But this, I have a right to my opinion, Member yeah, Thornton. You spoke what you wanted to say, now it's my turn. And so I think that... Describe for me a typical board meeting. Lawlessness. They they are not governed by anyone. We come in and board members go in a back room where they have ordered meals for themselves and they're back there while I'm sitting at the table with the public waiting. I don't know what you're doing in that back room and with lawyers and whatever, but the public is not very happy with what we see. At one time, the president of the board challenged someone in the audience to a fight. Uh, there's one member who turns to the public and said, did you hear what Mrs. Butterworth said? That's the name they called me. But uh, these members said whatever they wanted, and there is no one to govern them. I don't know what you're doing. You're selling our schools to who knows who. People come up here making deals right in front of us. Mr. Doing good until I hear this program. 
and now I am so depressed. I'm not. I'm just. I'm just shocked. I'm not shocked at all. But I am depressed because it doesn't make any sense that a bunch of grown-up people who cry hallelujah and could care less about their fellow man, especially exactly. See, I lived in Detroit for a minute. Yeah, okay. When it was when it was like in the early sixties, mm-hmm. in the late fifties, and all that stuff, right? Right. They had car plants there. Uh, people in smaller uh, businesses that supported the uh, automotive industry. They had entertainment industry up to Yahoo. Uh, all kind of arts and festivals and people buying houses and, and and big cars running around down the city. Businesses, I mean black businesses, because I lived in a neighborhood where I didn't have to go out of the neighborhood to get anything. It's almost like down south, but it was a good situation. Okay. <laughs> but the point of it is, is that after this riot thing, I think it was when uh, Dr. King got killed. Yeah. They had a riot. Then the uh, the Vietnam thing. You know, because there's always been some racial tension in Detroit. Yeah. But if you stayed in, the, in your neighborhood, you didn't have to worry about the racial tension because you was on your own and people got along. But the school system nowadays, come on, man. And just to hear those grown-up people fussing and fighting and cussing at each other about situations, taking money, uh, graft, whatever you want to call it, it's like they could care less. And then you hear about a bunch of teachers saying, well, I got mine. I don't care. All you have to do is come in and, and, and take a seat. Wrong attitude. Yeah, exactly. So the federal government should move in, take over the whole school system, the whole city, declare martial law, and, and then the improving the school system is no problem. They say, well, we don't have the right books. Any book could do to teach a kid how to read. Mm-hmm. I don't care about uh, the, the better books or whatever. Any book will do, but the kids that go through school, graduate, are either in the 10th or 11th grade and still can't fill out an application is stupidity. And I, I ran across this also in Connecticut, whereas they were talking about how the school board, they go they have a meeting, at least they attend the meeting, but they don't get anything done because they're fussing and fighting over different things that doesn't make any sense about the kids. More or less, a million dollars come in from the state and, and then from the government, right? Right. They up, there, they up there crying about, let's spend the money for this. No, let's spend the money for that. Oh, let's spend the money for that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh-huh. And then they go get some stupid stuff like a tennis court. You know what I mean? Come on. That's not helping a child learn how to do something. Or or do what or do like they did in Detroit with that with the building. They got they they bought um 
some some apart some 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 office space in this fancy building that they're using the building that they they already they own. They they already own. Yeah. Ain't that something? That, that, yeah. That, you know what that means, right? <laughs> it means a few people on that school board that could care less about anything but their own prestige. Yep. So, like I said, the government, if the government don't step in to do something, it's going farther and farther down the tube. And yep. all of those kids, all those kids that go to school, that's sitting out there on the stoop, not learning how to do it, how to do anything, but to get over on the on each other. Because who do you don't get up on? Get up on. There are no really businesses in Detroit. In order to do anything stupid, you got to go out of town to another little little suburb. You know what I mean? Yeah. The suburb is going to shoot you on sight. So only thing you're doing is 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 hurting the mom and pop businesses that's trying to make a dollar here and there. And that is so sad. It is. You know, I I mean it it's it's so it's so ridiculous to it to it so you just you have to shake your head go why I, tell me about it you know I used to live about two blocks from Diana Ross's home when uh she was living in Lasalle Boulevard oh the, the um, Supreme, um right? Booster talking about the Booster projects. No, Brewster probably way downtown. She used to live on LaSalle Boulevard when oh, she, okay. was, she she made the money. Oh, okay. Brewster Project is the project project. I don't I don't know. I've been scared to go down that way now. <laughs> you know what I mean? Down there, Brewster Project is where uh, Aretha Franklin used to live. Yeah. And her father. All of the big churches down there. Made all of that money, Daddy Grace, uh, um, Wynans, 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 or whatever else. Yeah, the Wynans. And they taking all that money, putting it in their pocket, living up on their uh, big home and houses, and they could care less about the little little person. You know? So, what you going to do? It needs to be an attitude adjustment. And then a conscious statement like, hey, guys, come on. What's up with this? But then again, you got to try to bring some more businesses back in that's going to say a a factory or a plant or something, right? Right. Now, that would help help a little bit. Yeah, yeah, because that was running the city. Yeah. You had General Motors. Ford. You had the Oldsmobile place. Which yep. now Oldsmobile stopped factory. Yeah, the Chevrolet, Cadillac, yep. Yep. and Buick, yep. Virginia, all made in Detroit yep. area. That's right. All of them, all of them Detroit. And then you and got then you the, had then you got Ford the Ford Company, Airborne, which is not that far away. Yeah, the Ford Company. They had the Ford Company. I used to live in Chicago, so I, I'm I'm, familiar, I'm kind of familiar with because because they had. Because um, Detroit, yeah, Detroit, well, Detroit had Chicago on one side, and the other side they had Gary. Yeah, 
Yep. The guys on the other side of Detroit. So they're kind of in, in, and then uh, Chicago's kind of like in between, in between the two. Yeah, but it wasn't that far away, though. Oh, no, no, no. Oh, no, it wasn't that far. No, no, no. You drive over to Chicago in a little bit, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And then go down to Ohio. Yeah, yeah. Because when my parents um, left the South, that's where they went. They went to Chicago. Oh, okay. And that's where I stayed there for about... About ten, about ten and a half, eleven years there. Oh, okay. So I'm pretty familiar with. I'm not that familiar with, with Detroit, but I kind of know what about you know the plight of the big cities, you know, right. like Detroit, and you know, like Detroit because Chicago had their own thing too. Yeah, but it, see, the thing about it is Chicago is now. How you call it? Uh, put the bad neighborhood in a bad neighborhood in a spot and, and drew a circle around it. Whereas Detroit, the whole damn city, is is a circle around it. Yep. You know what I mean? Cause I used Chicago to live with... was at the west side, the west side on uh, uh, Chicago. Yep. Whereas you go through it. You have to be in an armored car or something like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, it is so sad, I'm telling you. Because I, I used to live I used to live in Cabrini-Green. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah. I used to live before they, before they tore it down to the ugly orange and white building. Wow. We used to live in that, we used to live in that building a long time ago. And... <laughs> At that time, it wasn't as bad as it was then, but the run of the jokes about the the run of the joke is about the elevator, which is which is true, which was true. Get the you had to that? walk up, we had to walk like I think he was on 17th or 18th floor or something like that. I forgot what floor we were living on. If the elevator broke, you had to walk the stairs up up to your apartment. So I, wow, so I, I I I'm pretty much know about the plight of, of these big cities because living in Chicago for eleven and a half years of my life there, I I understand and I understand the the anger of a lot of the parents because one thing I can say about the Chicago school system they they when it comes to education they don't play. Good. They don't. They don't play. They they have the little problems, but one thing for sure, they're gonna make sure that the kids get books, get you know, whatever you know, whatever they whatever needs, uh, you know, to try to get keep the kids educated. Uh Hold on, y'all. Hold on. Uh. We're approaching, we are fastly approaching the top of the hour. We're going to continue with this discussion on a national disgrace. Dan Reddle reports on 
the education system in Detroit. Whew. Man, what a mess. You ever heard you ever heard the worst of it yet. Hey, there's my son. You've been in your room all morning. Hey, Dad. Um, Matt, what's wrong with your voice? There is nothing wrong with my voice. Oh, well, it's just sort of... I have been playing my video games and electronic games for so many hours. Uh-huh. Well, it sounds like it might be time for you to take a break, or... Hello, Dad. Um, Susan? I have been watching TV and text messaging all morning. Hey, electronics. Guys, I think it's about time to get in the car and take a little trip. Maybe see some trees, some green things. What are these green things you speak of? This weekend, unplug. Take your family to the forest. There's nothing in the world like experiencing nature firsthand. Trees, paths, bluebirds, streams. Getting closer to nature can get you closer to your family. To find the forest nearest you, go to discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. You're listening to the Jam Radio Network with Minister Kenneth Jenkins. Here's a piece of nation talk on necessary the views of TalkShoe, Jam Radio Productions, and its sponsors. This is Nation Talk. educational experience is not that great. I mean, the kids don't come to class on time, and, like, we use, like, 25 minutes out of the class to get the class to shut up anyway. We first met Deanna Williams in the winter of her junior year outside Henry Ford High School. Sadly, in many ways, it's a typical school in Detroit. Attendance is spotty, the graduation rate is low, and test scores suggest almost no students are performing anywhere near grade level. I don't really see the point of being here, but I'm here because I want to go to college, and I don't see how this is going to prepare me for college. What is your dream? What do you want to do with your professional life? I want to be a librarian and a writer. That is all I have ever wanted to do since I was little. Something to do with books. Well, that's... Not so wild a dream. To some it might not be, but it's my dream. Well, what do you do to prepare yourself for that? You said you read a lot. Certainly do. Um, last year, I helped out in the library on my free period. Um, I used to code and shelve books, check out books, and, like, search for lost books. It was, like, the most fun I had ever had in my life. And you like to write? Yes. Right, all the time. It's like getting my thoughts down on paper so I don't have to think about them anymore. Mm-hmm. Like, dredging up old memories is really tiring. Like, I just wrote it down. Do I really have to tell you again? Deanna's life hasn't been easy. Like many in Detroit, she has grown up on the brink of poverty. No, put some um, vegetables on broccoli, Brussels Brussels sprouts? Yeah. You want this? I want, I want some. Y'all don't have to eat it, but I want some. You're weird, lady. That is not an American meal. They're a family of three. Deanna, her younger sister, Isis, and their mother, Katina. Wait a minute. You have to be at school at 730? They've moved from rented house to rented house in rough, dangerous neighborhoods. Y'all have 
having burgers tonight. Tomorrow we have our onions, liver onions. But home, the girls told us, has mostly been a happy place. And as we got to know them, we found a tight-knit family bond. If you spent any time with both of them, you would just laugh. Even I, Deanna has a dry sense of humor. I just would just crack you up. It's just, I mean, and then you put them together and just like, where in the world did that come from? Right, basically. Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr. Do you know what they did for the world? Playing music. I think this is a funny one. I'm the one that at least tries to keep up with, with what's going on in the world. My mom is the one who brings in the culture in the house. Brussels sprouts. Oh, yeah. I keep feeling track for you. <laughs> she took us to plays and stuff, and we used to go downtown and all this, and we never really had the money to do a lot of stuff. I don't know what that is. But we have enough, and we take care of each other. Are you burning? Probably. That's the Brussels sprouts. I took them off the heat. The smell should be coming in now. Any comprehensive discussion of our public schools would be incomplete if it only examined what happens in the classroom or the district office. We are, after all, talking about children, and the child's education begins at home. Tell me your day goes. Cut me from the very beginning. What time do you get up? What do you do? Okay. I wake up 4.45 a.m. every morning. Nana, are you up? Nana. Yeah. 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 So I get down with her hair. She don't shoes on. We don't leave. It's 5.30. I'm walking out the door. Two blocks to the bus stop and to work. I get to work by 6.30. You don't have a car? No. Have you ever had a car? No. <laughs> How do they get to school? Bus. They're going to catch the same bus I catch to work. That's a city bus? Yes, the city bus. There's no school bus? No. We are too far from Henryford now for the school bus to come and get us. As the number of students has dropped in Detroit, the district has closed over 100 schools in the last decade. This means many students are forced to attend schools that are far from their homes, taking multiple buses to get there. Deanna and her family used to live closer to school. But that house was so small, Katina slept in the basement so her daughters could have their own rooms. This house is bigger, but there's always a trade-off. Is it about a neighborhood? Every neighborhood has some issues. Within this past week, there was a shooting at the end of the block. That's an issue? Yeah. And this was pretty close? Oh, right at the corner. Down the street from me. Pennies, singles, and tears? Yeah. And you're good. Right. Get your thing again. What do you do at Target? I am the cash office specialist. You count money? I count money. I draw a deep breath and ask this question. Mm-hmm. Give me a range of your total income a year. On a good two weeks is maybe four or five hundred dollars every two weeks. That's take home. Yes. After taxes. That's after taxes. Mm-hmm. What bus is that? Dexter downtown. That's what I need. Apparently, they're saying that these are the um, bus routes going to close, no buses on Saturday after 6, and no buses at all on Sunday. That's part of the city's effort to reduce their cost. Right. In a cab, it's like uh, almost $30. You can't afford that. No, absolutely not. Are you aware of how much your mother has dreamed for you? Yes. 
that she gave up for me. She wanted to join the military, and she wanted to go to college and do all that stuff. And before she, it was time for her to graduate, she found out she was pregnant. And I saw the graduation picture, and under the red robe, you can see her belly, and it's like, why in the world would you give that up for me? I have done some junk. And I asked her recently, like, what makes a parent love their child? So for the semester, I have to have had a 2.0. And read the rest of it. It says you will be expected to My dream changed. My time is to make sure their dreams come to performance, um, that they become more, that no matter what happens, that they know I'm there to help push them along. But for all of her pushing and prodding, Katina told us she knows there's only so much she can do alone to keep her daughters on the path to success. What would you say to a school board member if he or she were standing here in my place? As much as you care, what are you doing? to make a change in the DPS system. What are you doing and what are you trying to get your, the rest of the board members to do to help the DPS kids? Because right now, as much as you care, it's not working. When they were in elementary school, they had projects from science. They redid Mount Vesuvius and everything. When they were in elementary school, they had all these projects. It was like, get them. They were so excited to do these projects. She gets to middle school. There's no project. There's no science fair. There's no none of that. And I asked the science teacher why haven't they doing any projects. He says that he can't get the kids to mine, so he counseled them. He stayed there that one year, and I took her out of that school. Because her grades went from straight A's when she was in elementary school to D's now. Emerson had the worst reputation of a middle school ever, anywhere. There were fights in the hallways, sex in the hallways, in middle school, with middle school children. Um, for the better half of the year, I did not have a social studies teacher. We would go into the classroom and the lights would be off, and nobody was in there for the better half of the year. Seems almost unbelievable. It might seem that way, but it's the truth. Deanna continued to struggle academically at Emerson Middle School. But even though she was getting D's and F's in her classes, she tested in to one of Detroit's three high schools for honor students. Unfortunately, she says, Martin Luther King High School was too far from her home. It would be another setback. Deanna says she thinks a lot about how the schools have failed her and says she's still angry about her time back in middle school when everything started to go wrong. My teacher would drink in the classroom, drink Smirnoff. He smelled like liquor and black and mild, which is a cigar. My mom came up to the school for parent-teacher conference, and she thought he was a janitor or something because he was wearing a dirty T-shirt and dirty jeans trying to talk to her about what I was doing in class. He was drinking vodka in class? Yes. You say yes, but you you don't have to know that's not normal, not anywhere near normal. No, it's not, and it's sad because he didn't really care. He was just knocking him back. 
in the classroom. Security guards would walk past the kids on the stairs having sex. I would walk past kids on the stairs having sex. There would be oral sex in the back of the classroom. The teacher didn't really care what was going on. She was just, you know, trying to get the class to shut up long enough for her to get two words out. You know, there are going to be people who are watching and listening to this and saying, well, this young woman, must, she must have made this up. didn't really happen. I don't have to make it up. It happened. It happened. It was real. Yes. We had a self-inflicted gun wound to a student. We had numerous locker fires, bomb threats. A gun went off in the classroom. I obtained a fractured jaw being hit with brass knuckles. This is the principal of Finney High School addressing the graduating class of 2009. There was an in-school beating of a person that resulted in a death. If we ever doubted the truthfulness of student reports about what happens inside Detroit public schools, his matter-of-fact list of what these graduates had endured during their four years at Finney certainly made us pay attention. Students have died tragically, but we all stayed together, and we all made it through. I congratulate this senior class. In an effort to keep students in and violence out, Finney High School had taken the drastic step of building a chain-link fence around the entire school building. The symbolism was not lost on the students. It's pointless because I look at it like they're locking us in. Like we have no type of freedom. It's like we're animals. You cater us in like animals, they're going to act like animals. We know how they act. But by putting a cage around Finney, it's making them think, like, well, that's a representation of how they feel about us. We met brothers Darius and DeMarco Kraft when they were students at Fenton. They were both star football players, and they told us it was their devotion to the team that kept them coming to school every day. DeMarco was one of the graduates of this class. He went on to Alabama State University, but he told us he wasn't sure his high school diploma truly signified academic accomplishment. I don't feel that we're being prepared for colleges to the best of our abilities. I think it could be a lot more done. We can succeed higher if we really get better in education, but it's mediocre. It'll get you by, you know. The boys told us that many of their teachers just recited lessons from worksheets and textbooks and that the students had few chances for any hands-on learning. We might get that one teacher in English class. She may give you one essay. Like a lot of schools, you have essays for every class. Like biology, you might have a science project or something. But no science. I've never been a science project since I've been. There's certain stuff in the classroom we can't even touch, and it's supposed to be for the class. But people steal like scissors or tweezers, and we don't. I've done one experiment in chemistry, and we didn't even finish. A chemistry class without a single lab. That wouldn't be allowed in most high schools. But in Detroit, the students we talked to seem resigned to the reality of the way their schools are run. They don't have to travel a great distance, just over the Detroit city lines, to see suburban schools that are far different from theirs. It's a legacy that stretches back the decades to white flight, to the Millican Supreme Court case, 
the students in Detroit may not know all of the history, but they have a keen sense of the injustice. It's not fair that you see kids in Southfield and Waterford and all this, and they have computers in their classrooms, and they have new textbooks, textbooks I've never even seen before. And I go to the biggest district, and they can't even afford to give us a quality education or the kind of education that other kids are getting. And it's frustrating to know that I can be learning all of these things, and I can be doing all of these things, and I can't. And people think that people from, that the children in Detroit Public Schools are stupid and brutish because of what they see on television. And it's not true. We want to learn. We want to be able to do what the other children are doing. We want to have the same opportunities, but they keep taking them away from us. They keep, it's like they're keeping us down, and then you find out that the people who are supposed to be looking after us, after our well-being, they're stealing from us. And every day I want to know why. Why is this happening? To even begin to develop an answer to Deanna's question, you have to step back and look at the economic realities of Detroit. The decline of the auto industry has forever altered the city's landscape. Factories that now sit empty once beckoned with thousands of good-paying union jobs. For much of the 20th century, you didn't need a high school diploma to live the American dream. You could drop out, hit the factory floor, and earn enough money to support your family well. That era has passed, and there aren't very many new jobs to fill the void. But despite the decline of the city, the public schools themselves aren't exactly poor. With a budget of over a billion dollars a year, DPS is the largest single employer in the city. We're talking about teachers, janitors, secretaries in the central office, not to mention all the millions of dollars in contracts the district doles out to vendors who provide services to the schools. Former Superintendent Connie Calloway says it's been a lucrative system for those who are connected. You don't have to be competent. They call it a friends and family plan. Is that a well-known phrase in the school district? That's, yes, it is. They that's joke, it. that's what they said to me. One of the board members said to me, welcome to hell. Callaway believes that her attempts to gain control over district personnel and vendor contracts were at the center of her clashes with the Board of Education. It was a raw and savage power struggle. Contract hearing has been a problem they totally bypassed the administration and come straight to their committee meeting or the board meeting and introduce vendors for hundreds of thousands, thousands of dollars of contracts when we had no money. By the time Callaway was fired, the DPS deficit was nearing $300 million. Just seven years earlier, the district had a $100 million surplus. Something was clearly wrong with the district's finances. And Callaway wasn't the only one asking questions. Mr. Rather, how can you explain $47 million being electronically wired out of the district 
in a very short period of time, and no board member have knowledge of that? Well, how can that be? How can that be? I believe that uh, with a budget of $1.2 billion a year, people simply can't resist looting, if you will, the school system's budget for the sake of employment or for the sake of contracts, or it is seen as deep pockets. And therefore, children are pushed to the background and the economic needs of adults become a priority. From the vantage point, Mafatu saw six war canoes drawn upon the beach, but what held the boys' eyes in awful trance were the figures springing and leaping about the flames, darting, shifting, bounding toward the sky. The eaters of men, cannibals. Firelight glistened on their oiled bodies, on flashing spears and bristling decorations. Mafatu watched the strange scene, powerless to move, and he felt doom itself breathing chill upon his neck. In that very instant, he heard a crashing in the undergrowth. Four figures were tearing toward him through the jungle. He could see them now. He turned and ran blindly down the trail, slipping, sliding, stumbling, his breath all but choking in his throat. Only one thought gave him courage as he ran. His canoe, ready and waiting. If only he could reach it before the savages overtook him. Explore new worlds. Find out what happens next by reading the book Call It Courage by Armstrong Sperry. For other great book ideas, visit literacy.gov. A message from the Library of Congress and the Ad Council. challenge 
this particular board. You're playing games, okay? And stop playing games with the children. Oh, yeah, I'm Benji. Sure is Benji. Yes, I am Benji. Yes, I am Matt. But we don't teach in the classroom. We're not in school buildings on a day-to-day basis. We are actually policy-making bodies. We don't do the implementation. We set policies. But a lot of people believe when anything goes wrong, it's that board that did it. Those are the laws. If you want no child left behind, if you want that money for this and the money for that, you've got to follow those things to the left. It's clear that the school board takes a lot of heat. But members say it's not fair to put all the blame on them. After all, they say, the state of Michigan took over the schools in 1999 and ran up high budget deficits with no improvement in academic achievement. So when the elected school board returned to power in 2006, public expectations were especially high. So the fundamental question that most people raise here is whether or not we can govern ourselves. That really is the underlying question. Nothing was passed. I don't think that's what the board members understand. Okay, I want to make sure that the board, there seems to be some, there's a question of clarity. Only 10% of that deficit occurred during the reign of this current board, and now everyone is trying to wash their hands and put the blame on this board. And that was when the state, Governor Granholm, controlled the district and the mayor. So when they put us at high risk, it wasn't the elected school board. I want everyone to be clear about what they're voting for. We're going to redo the vote. I, I thought we were voting on number one. No. Can we govern ourselves? Or do we need to have a different system of urban education from a governor's standpoint that allows either a mayor or a strong CEO to, to carry forth academic reforms? But didn't it didn't so it pass? It did not pass. What, which so, way did I vote? Okay, I think it's just a question. This school system doesn't have time to tinker around the edges. It doesn't have time to plot. In March 2009, a new player arrived on the scene. You know, when I came in, I looked at everything. The state of Michigan had stepped in once again. And they called in this man, Robert Bob, to clean up the mess. I mean, we're in a crisis. Not only are we in a financial crisis, we're also in an academic crisis as well. Bob was given the title Emergency Financial Manager. I have no tolerance for it. I have no tolerance for anyone who takes one red penny of public money. None. Zero. Zilch. Over the course of 30 years, Robert Bob has specialized in turning around the finances of depressed urban areas across the country, from Oakland, California, to Washington, D.C. Now, the world that I live in, you don't issue bonds to cover ongoing operating expenses. He had a no-nonsense reputation. He wasn't afraid to make enemies. And critics of the school board were starting to take notice. We told you emergency manager was coming when you kept us five or six hours and didn't take care of business. Now he's here. And you know what? I'm going to tell you something. Thank God. The Board of Education now had a direct threat to its power. And many Detroiters saw Bob as the last best hope for bringing long overdue accountability to the district. So where was lying in that pocket? I hope Mr. Bob surely finds them. Because I want to stand in that courtroom and say, hey, you took our children's future away from them, so yours should be taken away too. 
situation is before you took this job? No. Uh, when you I heard rumors. You must have heard rumors. You read reports. You know, when I reviewed the financials for prior years, I saw $139.7 million budget deficit. The world that I come out of, piece of cake, and come in, we can take care of that. What I didn't realize is that I would inherit almost another $70, $80 million in budget deficit on a budget that really was a budget that was built on a house of cards. Okay, because it's a revenue producer that we're looking at. Bob told us that in all his years of experience, he had never seen bookkeeping in such shambles as he saw in Detroit. When I came here, we had over $80 million in late payments. They didn't have the cash to pay many of these vendors. Our book companies, for example, had us on credit watch. Uh, when I arrived, we had to go to the state to get an advance to make payroll in April. We took another advance to make payroll in May. We actually had over 500 employees on the payroll without a budget. We had vendor invoices stuck in desk drawers. We had employees with ineligible dependents receiving health care benefits. Some individuals were actually deceased and were still paying their health care benefits. I sent out almost 40 auditors to audit every school. It's an army of auditors. Correct. Across the entire school district to audit all of our bank reconciliations, all of the cash that comes into these schools from athletic funds, from music funds, from, you know, bake sales. And what we found is that we found individuals who were writing checks for themselves using the school system as their own personal banker. Let me just go to the results of these audits because they are disturbing in many, many ways. Only five of the 194 schools had entirely proper bookkeeping. Uh, five of 194 schools. With the help of his auditing team, Bob bored down into the books of all of Detroit's public schools and surfaced with an embarrassing laundry list of financial missteps. Lack of documentation, missing cash receipts, improper and unauthorized disbursements, missing series of checks, untimely deposits, financial records removed from the school, school funds that were diverted to individuals' personal accounts. Where do those records go? Incredible. This is case number 0962475. But Bob wasn't content with just documenting fraud and mismanagement. Count one, embezzlement, public official over $50. He vowed to bring people to justice. To date, he has launched about 300 criminal investigations. Many have been referred to the local prosecutor and a handful to the U.S. attorney. And these are individuals who were allowed to steal from the school system, but in one instance remained employed after three years of being videotaped removing computers from the city warehouse. And when you say from the school district, it's really from the kids. Oh, it's totally from the kids. Absolutely. And so we, you know, we're, we're recovering everything that we can. Stolen computers, hundreds of Blackberries, a warehouse of motorcycles. Bob told us they could have a swap meet with all of the questionable materials that have been mysteriously purchased on the school system's dime. In the end, somebody is responsible. Somebody was supposed to catch this stuff long ago, long before you came in. I laid the responsibilities clearly on the shoulders of the school board. I was president of a school.
I understand what to do with your fiduciary responsibilities are. You know, they're the corporate board of a $1.2 billion corporation. They cannot sit idly by and somewhat dismiss the fact that we've had seven years of overspending. We've had waste, fraud, and abuse. They are the ones who have to hold themselves accountable. All those in favor, stand adjourned. Well, is it or is it not the Board of Education's job to be responsible for keeping the financial house in order? Is that that is correct. But what we do is, as policymakers, we hire individuals to perform those duties for us. And keep in mind, the uh, superintendent is the one that recommends who she would like to work with. Well, here's where this is going. Should or should not have the Board of Education done more to save the money for the children? Could you have done more? See, you sound like them. Could we have did more to save money for the children? If we do not handle the day-to-day operation and we hire a superintendent that we pay quite well, over 200 thousand dollars and they come to us, we expect them to give us the correct information. And if you have a chief financial officer that comes before you every day and they say the books are balanced, then at some point you have to believe and trust your superintendent, trust your chief financial officer, trust your treasurer, that the information they're providing to the board is correct. Well, at least one member of the school board, and I think it's shared by others, takes the view when asked, where were you? You have to understand, Mr. Rather, that it's the superintendent's job to catch these things and bring them to us. Do you buy them? Well, being from Louisiana, I would say that's how I get it done. That's it's not the case at all. You hire a CEO. You're over that CEO. You give him or her a contract, and you hold them accountable. You don't just hire a CEO and say, just go out and do, you know, whatever. And then there's evidence where these superintendents actually brought uh, strong recommendations to the board, wherein the board has said, you know, no. It's a whole lot to go. It's a whole lot um, of stuff that goes on. Um, we're gonna go around here and uh, get our news. Go ahead and get our news and views. <laughs> We got Mike on the on the phone. He's been he's been listening in on this on this documentary. It's a thank mess. you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. But but uh the information that you just presented oh. on your program. Oh, okay. Because I didn't know the extent of what was going on, and for the length of time that it was going on, well, yeah, because this was like this. I said, I know it's bad, but I didn't know it was that cancer that was spreading so fast. This was like six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen. About this, this was like ten years ago. Yeah. And can you imagine if if it happened like ten years ago? And it hasn't improved too much better. Yeah, and it's a wonder if they if 
if they did, if it has, um, the way the school system, uh, <laughs> it's, I still don't understand what did they do with all that money? In the pocket, what do you think? Hey, you hear what he said about warehouses, all of the Blackberries, computers? And the motorcycles. People writing their own checks? Come yeah. On, you know that? People stealing, um, stealing. They, they write their videotape, and they're stealing from the school system. That's yeah. a crime shame. The dirty crime Here oh, in the school, the school system here don't they don't play that. They're no, real strict. You got responsible adults like parents that uh uh-uh, uh we ain't buying this. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Well, see over there, a, uh, an adult can go up and say, "Look at just like the lady got fired, right?" Right. That she was doing good. Hey, they fired up, man. Uh-uh, you ain't yeah, uh, I think eighteen. I think she was there for only eighteen months. That's all. And she was doing good. She was doing good. It was. It was like a. It was like a turnaround. And then uh-huh. I guess. I, I guess. I guess we're getting too good, so they had to. They, they, no, she. She was getting too close. <laughs> uh huh. To get too close, uh-huh. and they. they it was like, off with your head. See ya. Hey, don't mess with my cookie jar. Okay. <laughs> well, that that's just something I want to present because I heard so much about. When I saw this, I, when I saw this, I said I got to put this on. Sunday. I appreciate you doing it, doing it too. Yeah. But our news and views. MSNBC host Joy Reid targets Chris with anti-gay comments in an old blog post. Uh, MSNBC host Joy Reid wrote a dozen blog posts from 2007 to 2009 containing offensive homophobic remarks Anti-gay jokes. The old post, the old, the old blog post unearthed by a Twitter user and reported by Meta Meta target former former Governor Charlie Christie, who beat Mark as Miss Charlie for being gay and close and closet, even though. There was never any proof that he was. The Post fanned rumors of Chris' sexual orientation and his his political opposition tried to tar him with a gossip, gossip, with the gossip during the gubernatorial ship when he was a Republican. The controversial host apologized Sunday for the Post. In, in short, she said, "This is this, this is good here." Quote: "The note is my apology to all who are disappointed disappointed by the content of blogs I wrote a decade ago, for which my choice of words 
and tone have legitimately been criticized. End quote. Uh, so, so they, so uh, so they, it said that Chris, that the governor, Chris, is gay, which I don't know. Frankly, I don't. I really don't. Really don't care. <laughs> oh well. But she, but she wrote a blog. Um, she wrote that blog. Uh, during that time. And let's see. The um, the Georgia Bulldogs are going to the national championship to whoever who, who to whoever. Who will they play? We don't know yet. We will, will, will more likely. Georgia beat Auburn twenty twenty eight to seven. Twenty. That was today, to right? Seven. That was yesterday's game. Oh, yesterday. Oh, okay. Uh, Georgia, which is twelve and one, and Auburn is now ten, uh, and ten and three. So they're going to the national championship. Vince Dooley, there was a, it was a. On locally, <coughs> that Vince Dooley, um, in the interview, that, that the reporter asked him what, what he thinks about Georgia going to the national championship. He said, "Well, we worry about, well, we'll worry about the SEC championship, and then we, right now, then we'll worry about the national championship." Coach Dooley, who he's retired from, he's he's retired. And uh, he gave his his um, he gave his not a prediction, but his thoughts on it on it because he was there when when um, he went to the national championship when Herschel Walker was playing at the time. You going back a minute? Oh yeah, so. This will be the first time in some time that Georgia finally going to the national championship. <laughs> Man. Congratulations for all you Georgia guys. Yep. Matt suspends famed conductor accused of molesting teenage for the for years in the eighties. Legendary a uh, legendary conductor at the Met- at the Metropolitan Opera, James Levine, has been accused of sexual abuse, abusing a teenager in Illinois for a period of several years in the 1980s. The Met said in a statement Sunday, it is suspending Levine from all activities related to the Opera House, while the allegations of being investigated following multiple allegations of sexual misconduct committed by Mr. Levine that took place from the 1960s to the 1980s, including the earlier part of his conducting career at the Met. Met General Manager Pete Gelb 
said while we wait while wait the results of the investigation based on new news reports the Met has been the, the has made the decision for now Levine who is who is now 74 was the music director at the Met for four decades he has recently suffered a variety of health problems and retired from his headline role at the Met last year, but continues to conduct occasional performances. Officials at the Met were reported made aware of the allegations sometime in 2016. On Saturday, the Met said on Twitter, Twitter that an investigation has been launched with the help of outside resources to evaluate the veracity of the claims. Hmm. We have another we have another high profile uh individual who has been involved in some freaky stuff. Who is that? Um, the conductor Levine, that uh, Metropolitan Opera. Excuse me, um, conductor. Hmm. Oh well. But hold on, we got a hail farewell. We have a hail and farewell to Jim Neighbors, who left us this week. However, we'll be back with that. Some more thoughts from your phone calls. Right after this. License and registration. But I'm walking. Do you want to upset an officer of the law? No, sir. Good. I pulled you over today for littering. Uh, I didn't litter. <laughs> wow. That's what they all say. Unfortunately, I saw you drop a pair of thunder thighs a few blocks back. Probably happened as you were biting into that apple you're holding. Uh, how'd you know they're my thunder thighs? Well, my young friend, I'd like to say two years, and the police academy helped figure it out. But between us, it was smallstep.gov. Smallstep.gov? Yeah, Peruni. It's this site with tons of easy ways to lose weight. Some steps are so easy, people don't realize they're doing them. Like you taking small step number 83, snack on fruits. Go to smallstep.gov, you'll see. You can drive off now. I'm still walking. Take a small step to get healthy at smallstep.gov. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Will music make your child smarter? Find out next on today's Creation Moment. And now, here's our Creation Moment host, Ian Taylor. Scientists have shown that the so-called Mozart effect of music in young children is just a myth. This popular idea said that exposing young children to classical music improves their ability in non-verbal tasks. Nevertheless, researchers did find a more interesting effect of classical music on students. At the beginning of the school year, researchers from the University of Toronto randomly assigned 132 first graders into one of four groups. 
Some received piano or drama lessons, while others took chess lessons or joined science programs. At the end of the school year, the students' IQs were evaluated. Those who had taken piano lessons showed a seven-point increase in IQ. Those involved in the other programs showed only a four-and-a-quarter-point increase in IQ. Researchers believe that the focused attention that learning music requires for extended periods is a major factor in the greater increase of IQ among the music students. They also suggest that the memorization required in a musical education also helps IQ. Further research into these and other factors will be the subject of long-term study. Music is a gift from God, and the study of music has traditionally been considered an essential element of a good education. Modern research is showing us that this traditional approach to music has more wisdom than is offered by a purely materialistic approach to education. For a free copy of our Creation Resource Catalog, visit our website at creationmoments.com or call us toll-free at 1-800-42-BIBLE. And be sure to join us next time for another Creation Moment, proclaiming evidence of God's truth. You're listening to the Jam Radio Network with Minister Kenneth Jenkins. The man who sang Indiana's signature song before our state's biggest yearly event 36 times has been silent. Jim Neighbors passed away at the age of 87. And we were the first to tell you about his passing today at noon. Yeah, that's known by most people as TV's Gomer Pyle. Jim Neighbors sang back... ...home in Indiana at the Indianapolis 500 between 1972 and 2014. His longtime partner says he died peacefully overnight at their home in Hawaii. No neighbors touched the hearts of Hoosiers. He spent his later years in Hawaii. Our sports director, Dave Calabro, visited neighbors there on three separate occasions as neighbors reflected on his life, his career, and how he wanted to be remembered. The view out Jim Neighbors' back door in Honolulu is stunning. Aloha. <laughs> Welcome. Good to see you, Jim Neighbors. It's good to see you. This is a
beautiful piece of property. How long have you lived here? I've been here about 37, 38 years, and, uh, well, you know, right now it's, it took a lot of golly to pay for this sucker. <laughs> He was best known for playing TV's Gomer Pyle. This morning, after a year of declining health, Jim Neighbors died peacefully at his home in Hawaii with his husband by his side. Yeah. Neighbors was 87 years old, and for a look back on his life and career, we turn now to entertainment guru George Pinocchio. Okay, thank you. As a young man, Jim Neighbors brought his southern charm from Alabama to Hollywood, hoping to become a singer, and in time, he would. But Andy Griffith helped give him the greatest detour of his career. Hi, Gomer. Andy Griffith chose Jim Neighbors to play the lovable, innocent Gomer Pyle on his self-titled sitcom after hearing him perform at a local nightclub. It was one of those magic... ...television. Stan Cadwallader said, 
everybody knows he was a wonderful man. All right. Some neighbors who we lost this week, he was 87 years old. So, uh, Mike. Yes, sir. I saw your, I saw your, I didn't finish looking at it, but you, your, your, um, yeah, your clip. I didn't get a chance to finish looking at it, looking at it. Well, go back and look at it and finish looking at it. <laughs> but, but I got your message about it. Huh? I got your message that, uh, about the about the clip that you sent the clip, I got the message. I didn't having I didn't get a chance to look at it. Okay. Well, I'm not not in fact, in fact, I'm going to look at it again when we get off. Yeah. Um, I gotta let's see. Uh, so you're gonna be doing this. How often are you gonna be doing um to Facebook? Well, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna try to do it every Saturday. Okay. Now, until first of the year, which is at another what three three weeks to go? Yeah, just about. All right, and after that, I don't know. All depends on what the Lord say and and uh, how the people react to it. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I'm trying to uh, create a course out of uh, doing a relationship and having a relationship. Okay, that sounds good. Uh, okay. All conscious of time. Well, you know how they go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey, look here. Anyway, let me go ahead and finish cleaning up this kitchen. But uh, I really appreciate the program tonight about the Detroit school system. <laughs> that was that was very, very valuable. It was, and it, and it's needed. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. Don't make them. Don't make no sense at all. It's almost as bad. You know what? It's almost as bad as talking about hunger in America. Now that's a that's a subject matter that should not even be brought up. <laughs> no such thing. No such thing as people being hungry in America. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah. Oh man, it's, it's so sad, man. It's so sad. It is. Well, you have a wonderful week. I'm gonna close it out with one of his okay. one of the songs that I love to hear him sing. That's an impossible dream. This is and this is this is coming from the TV series. I I gotta download it and I play it every now and then. It's, oh, okay. it's a wonderful song. I, I love I love playing it and I love to listen to it um, on there. So I'm gonna close out with this song um, by Jim Neighbors. Okay. All right. Well, go away. Take care. God bless you, man. All right. Here's a team of Nation Talk, and I'm going to say the views of Talkstream, Generated Productions, Soliat.com, and its sponsors. 
This has been Nation Talk, a public affairs program, news, public affairs and news program that airs Sunday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Be sure to join me every Sunday for another Nation Talk here on Talk Show and Jam Radio. Nation Talk is, a, is produced by Jam Radio Productions Presentation. I'm going to close out appropriately. As I said, this is one of my favorite songs that Jim Neighbors does when he's at Gomer Powell. This is like the, one of my favorites, one of the three songs I like to hear him sing. But this one, I like to hear him sing a lot. And that's Possible Dream. Good night. God bless you. And have a wonderful, wonderful week. Safe and wonderful week. And so, ladies and gentlemen, I am proud to present Marine Private First Class Gomer Park.
Thank you.